This is Archive Atlanta, episode 131, Sweet Auburn Curb Market. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week we're talking about Atlanta's OG food hall, the Sweet Auburn Curb Market. I did a mini episode about this way back in February of 2020, but I wanted to take the topic off the shelf, expand on my initial research, add more detail, and then just make sure that this history reaches as many people as possible. Mainly because Atlanta seems to be getting a new food hall every month. There's one that just opened at Colony Square. uh, There's one off Chattahoochee Avenue. There's one under construction at Underground Atlanta. And of course, we have Pond City Market and Krog Market, and that is just to name a few. And I am not here to bash them. I really do enjoy the concept, especially with a husband that's a pescatarian and I am a meat eater. So it's nice to be in one place where, you know, we can eat different things. We can sit in a common area Um, and then done right. You know, they can be a space for new restaurants to start with low overhead and, you know, not a lot of cost to, to get going. That being said, I think the curb market story and awesomeness gets lost to new construction and like new marketing for all these places. And it's existed for almost a century. So today I'm going to tell you about its creation, a story that's about women, farming, war, race, and revitalization. The story starts with Nellie Peters Black. I did an entire episode 27 about her, and then I did episode 43, which was about her father, Richard Peters. By 1914, she was managing her father's farmland in Gordon County all by herself, which was a really rare position for a woman at this time. And she pushed for local farming reform, hoping to encourage farmers to break away from cotton, criticizing them for growing it because it was a guaranteed return, and not trying things like hay or produce or vegetables, things like that. But even for those farmers that did produce eggs or vegetables, they had a really hard time finding places to sell their crops. Main problem was getting this rural product into urban city centers. Now, on the other hand, local buyers, um, a lot of local stores in cities didn't want to buy things like, let's say, oats, for example. They preferred oats from out west, citing that Georgia farmers just weren't really that great at growing things that weren't cotton. We also need to mention World War I, which began in 1914, but the U.S. did not enter until 1917. And I talked about this in a few episodes, especially the overalls episode. But there were shortages of material and food and issues with inflation. The cost of food went up 46% between the summer of 1916 and the spring of 1917, and then it went up another 45% by December. So here's where we start to see things like Victory Gardens. Really, it's just a small private garden, but the marketing push behind it made people feel like they were helping the war cause, you know, being quote unquote good Americans, and then feeding their families in a supplemental way. At this time, Nellie Peters Black began a Grow at Home campaign, which was empowering women to grow some of their own produce, and also that mission she had of switching Georgia's farmers from cotton to produce. By 1916, a mass meeting in Atlanta brought up the discussions of establishing a city market. Now, this was not the first time this idea had been broached. Um, City leaders were talking about this from like 1908, I saw onward. But this group was really motivated, and they thought that the best method to reduce the high cost of food was to establish this municipal market. They had three resolutions. Their resolutions were to establish a market in Atlanta, 
The plan was also then to push housewives to plan for cooperative buying, basically reducing small package deliveries and numerous trips to one central place. So the way that shopping worked at this time, we did not get an official supermarket in Atlanta until 1914. But before that, people were just going out sometimes numerous times a day to temporary vendors or small vendors in their neighborhood. And so they wanted women to kind of schedule this one big shopping plan. And then the third resolution was to establish a direct connection between local producers and consumers. So Georgia farmers with Georgia consumers. By the next year, little mini farmers markets were popping up all over the city, selling produce by farmers and even local kids. There's really cute stories um, at the corner of Peachtree and West Peachtree Streets. They had the girls from the Davis Street School that were selling their harvest. And then in the third ward at the corner of Capitol and Georgia Avenues, there was an eight-year-old who became famous for his delicious cabbage. In 1918, the Atlanta Women's Club, which also had its own episode, number 11, got permission from the city to set up an open-air farmer's market on a vacant lot at Peachtree and West Peachtree Streets, near Baker Street. The owner of this lot was apparently a New Yorker who lived out of state, and so donated the plot for the women to use. Farmers' wagons would arrive first thing in the morning and stay until they sold out. And at first, it was two days a week. Then it was three, and the idea was to get to a point that they could maintain a daily market. It was a huge success. There was a steady stream of customers all day long, and then the club women who led this effort hired a market expert, kind of like an outside auditor, so to speak, to come and assess the market and how it's working. Comically, he reiterates some of the earlier merchant concerns, which is Georgia farmers who have long been growing cotton aren't really that great at the growing vegetables game. So the consultant suggests that they set up a larger curb market with agricultural seminars and classes to sort of train these farmers into producing better product. In 1919, Mrs. Irving Thomas, club president, and Mrs. Norman Sharp, secretary, have a conference with Mayor James Key. He supports the idea of a municipal market, sees it as a civic improvement, and sees no idea why Atlanta can't have one. So he tells the women, Make a committee, and I will show you centrally located city-owned properties that we could use for this. The committee is composed of several club women with names I've mentioned in some episodes before, most notably Mrs. Newton C. Wing um, from the Better Homes episode. By June of 1920, plans were made to open a curb market at the corner of Gilmer and Cortland Streets alongside the city auditorium. At first, they're just going to be open Tuesdays and Saturdays, but if you see a list of the newspaper articles for the rest of 1920, basically, this is a booming success. Every other day, it's like, hey, we're staying open late. Oops, we're opening another day. And they're hitting sales records left and right. In December, it closes for the season, and then by May of 1921, it's back to being its popular attraction. With this success, there is a desire for a permanent building that could be open during the winter months. They wouldn't have to be seasonal. In March of 1921, the city's Bureau of Municipal Research approved designs from architect A. Tenike Brown for a beautiful building to fill a lot along Edgewood and Butler Streets that had been previously cleared by the Great Fire of 1917. All of the structures that once filled this corner were gone, so the potential for a home for the market was there. It would have 200 stalls, heating and refrigeration planned, and a garbage incinerator. So the lot itself would need to be purchased, and it cost $85,000. The idea is that the county would appropriate funds for this purchase because while we are inside the city limits of Atlanta, it benefits 
rural county farmer. So that was kind of the idea. And then the city was going to pay to construct the building itself. Any remaining funds would be raised with a bond issue. Cue the drama. Court injunctions were filed against Fulton County to block the money. There's really strong opposition from retailers, mainly by their association called the Atlanta Retail Food Dealers Association. So their take is that a municipal market takes away from corner stores and grocers. And not every housewife has a car to reach this market. Not every housewife has a servant to stay with the kids while she travels to a further market. Basically, the corner store is important and that this would raise costs for them and then hence raise costs for these smaller stores. So this fight goes on for years. I'm not kidding, years. But this entire time, that open-air Kerr market is still operating. In 1922, Mayor Key again expressed his desire for a city market, citing how the successes of the current market, again, the open-air one, how much it's sold, how beneficial it's been to Georgia farmers, like, this is amazing and great and we need it. By the end of the year, nine private citizens organized a group to lease this city lot, and then form a bond issue to fund construction. And they made it happen. In December of 1922, City Council approved the lease, and A. Tenike Brown resubmitted his architectural plans. This quote-unquote handsome market, as it was described, cost $150,000 to build. And it was underwritten by private wealthy Atlantans that expected to be paid back with dividends from the market success. A lot of these guys also own properties along Edgewood, or near the market, so there's incentive to have a successful market near their land. The resubmitted plans call for 175 to 200 stalls or booths, all the most up-to-date technology, and the entire building would be under the charge of a market master, working under similar rules found across markets in other U.S. states. Construction began in the winter of 1923. The cornerstone was laid in January of 1924, and the occasion was quite the grand one. 500 prominent Atlantans are invited, and the invocation is given by the pastor of North Avenue Presbyterian, with the cornerstone made of Tate marble, a gift from Mr. Tate himself. In May, the market was ready and open to the public, with background music from Tech High School Band. Three quarters of the space inside was for truck farmers, basically trucking in their their crops from far away, and then one quarter rented out to local vendors. So if you listened way back, I did an interview with Akila about Atlanta's food history. Um, She's the expert on the market. She told me that this is really the first time this happens. This differentiates it from being just a farmer's market or just an open-air market. The fact that there is farmer market stalls, but then also vendor stalls. The Atlanta Women's Club made a cookbook specially for this. They sold it inside the market. Uh, it, just, it was a roaring success. Club women were extremely active throughout the years. They had events there. They had socials, um, classes, parties, festivals, just so many things. By 1927, the municipal market cleared $1 million in sales, and it had 147 farmer stalls. This is also 1920s segregated Jim Crow Atlanta. So while African-American consumers were allowed in the building, and the municipal market was probably one of the more integrated spaces in the city, so it was a little bit of a refuge, but black farmers and vendors were not allowed to sell inside the building. 
Instead, they had to set up their goods alongside the curve on the outside, at times drawing some criticism from white vendors inside who were pretty angry that a lot of shoppers never made it past the curb inside to buy their produce. Now, because of this existence as really two separate markets in a sense, although the name of the building was the municipal market, the curb market outside had locals calling it the Sweet Auburn Curb Market, which is what I still call it today. So if you've been confused by this, because the building says on it municipal market, but again, I've always heard it as the curb market, I call it the curb market, now you know. By the 1940s, the Kerr Market was considered the largest retail center for Georgia products, and it continued to be successful and popular through the decades. And then the 1970s arrived. So a Constitution article from 1971 blasts the headline, quote, Is the municipal market doomed? End quote. The 50-year lease with the city was set to expire in two years, in 1973. So there's discussion, like, what's going to happen? You know, do we move? Do we stay? There's really great interviews in this piece from vendors who had been in that building since childhood. Um, There was a woman named Mrs. Land who started selling country butter for 10 cents um, at her dad's booth when she was seven. She now sells that same country butter for 45 cents. She not only met her husband at the market, by the way, they'd been married 39 years at this point, but her son had a stall just a few yards down from her. There was also J.T. Shorty Sherling, who had been the market's barber for the last 41 years, and he apparently collected hair from his most famous haircuts and, like, hung them on the wall, and one of those was Governor George Wallace from Alabama. Market managers wondered, you know, is, is this a better time for us to move and maybe double the size, make it bigger? But then other local Atlanta organizations, especially the police chief at the time, really wanted this kind of prime piece of real estate that was on Edgewood Avenue. At this point in history, it's post-wide flight, it's you know, post-urban renewal, the majority of Curb Market's patrons were Black. And so the produce and the goods reflected what those people wanted to buy. And so colloquially, it was called the Soul Food Shopping Center. Unfortunately, at the same time, the market came under scrutiny from the Department of Agriculture and the FDA because there was rats and generally unsanitary conditions. I mean, think about it. it, The building had been up for 50 years at this point. It, It had some issues. By 1973, Mayor Sam Massel refused to negotiate the lease. And so supporters start a Save the Market campaign, and they successfully garnered a million-dollar loan to renovate and rehab the building. In 1980, the city of Atlanta purchased it, and it struggled a little bit until the announcement of the Olympics. So the 1996 Olympics brought another bunch of money um, for renovation and a grand reopening that happened in 97. And apparently, fun fact, President Bill Clinton visited in 1999. Today, inside you can still buy vegetables, you can still buy meat, you still from Georgia farmers, but you can also eat delicious food, drink, you can take cooking classes, you can even see live music. And the market also acts as an incubator for small businesses. Like I said, lots of restaurants have started in there, um, opened other locations. You know, some are still in there and have bigger locations. I know that COVID has impacted Atlanta's food service the most. Um, There's places in the car market that are no longer there. Like Arepa Mia was my favorite place to eat. I mean, obviously, they still exist in Avondale, um, but they're no longer in the car market. It will always be my favorite food hall concept in the city. It's the original. So there you have it. The story of the municipal market or the Sweet Auburn Curb Market. 
Its address is 209 Edgewood Avenue. So if you've never been, you can make that part of your post-vaccination summer plans. Thank you everyone for listening. If you love the podcast and you have a minute to spare, I would love a review on Apple Podcasts. So this really helps suggest the show to more people and I want to spread the love of Atlanta's history as far and wide as possible. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast and access bonus mini episodes. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.